Hey docs, welcome to the Female Physician Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon McLaughlin. We are the premium location where women physicians come and learn about business. We're building profitable businesses so that we can have the freedom to live our best life. We have this podcast. We have a community of over 9,000 women physicians. So if you're not in it yet, come and join us. We have journals. We have a business program that meets every Thursday night. And there's also replays available if you can't make it. We have a conference coming up in May, and that'll be on Long Island. We're going to be doing masterminding, so come and join us. You can learn more at our website at fpestrong.com. That's fpestrong.com. I'd love for you to be a part of our group. If you like this podcast, do me a favor, please share it with another doc and give it a great review. And if you need one-on-one, I'm doing business coaching as well as career coaching. So reach out. I've been doing this for a number of years, and I can't wait to speak to you. Hey, everybody. I have Dr. Greenberg here. Dr. Greenberg is the owner of a group practicing purchase program. The name of that is the Medical Practice Purchasing Group. I wanted him to come on. He's very kind in the sense that he's owned a private practice. And you guys know that we're in the middle of doing a series on private practices. So we're going to dive a little bit deeper than what we've been doing on most other podcasts. And for anyone starting a practice, this will be the place to start. It'll be a good blueprint for you to listen to. And then if you could do me a favor and share with your friends, I will have all of Dr. Greenberg's notes, his website, and we're going to be talking throughout the podcast as well, but it'll all be in the show notes. Do take a look at that. Dr. Greenberg, thank you very much for coming to our program today. I appreciate it. We'll start with the overall landscape of the medical economy. And I definitely, throughout the series, want to be able to bring in your purchasing program that you own and how it can save physicians money, how it can better negotiate some rates for them, everything that they need for their private practice. So thank you for this. Thank you. All right. We're going to be talking about like the impact of ACAs and private equity and the emergence of concierge supergroups. Tell me as far as the overall landscape of medical practices right now, medical economy, where do you see it heading? It's come a long way from the generation before me, where basically people would finish their training and they'd go and they'd put up a shingle and go to the doctor's dining room and they would be busy within a year. And certainly over the last couple of decades, it's changed quite dramatically, but we're currently in this kind of transitional phase in the sense that even if you go back, let's say 10 years, the vast majority of physicians were working in small private medical practices, two to seven or eight doctors. And there's been significant macroeconomic changes that have occurred during that time. A lot of it really fueled by the Affordable Care Act from, I guess that was 2010 or so, somewhere in that that current period. But one of the things that the ACA did is it tilted the landscape heavily in favor of very large integrated medical groups. So really your academic centers and things like that. And we've seen the impact of it in really all across the country. I'm in Southern California, where my alma mater, UCLA, has decided to put law offices all over Southern California. And they're able to do that partially because there's been a change in the way that that you get reimbursed. So if you're part of a, a tightly integrated academic network, the allowable amount that you can charge for the same exact insurance plan, the same exact patient can be four times what you can get in private practice. And so what that's done is it's created this 
significant incentive for mass consolidation, not just from the academic centers, as we've seen the last couple of years, significant entry from private equity. And what's happened with private equity is interesting. I never thought I would see them getting involved in the pediatric space, but they are. And the reason being that with a so low, um, traditional investments for them have dried up or haven't been quite as lucrative. And the one thing you know about medicine in general is that if you're running a pretty good practice, you're going to have a steady flow of income. So that's led to this very significant influx of private equity and money and private equity expertise um, in terms of consolidating practices across the country. So you take those two things, and then on the private side, just large medical groups consolidating and trying to expand the reach. It's led to a landscape where seeing the number of doctors in small private practice go from 75% of those of us that are seeing patients down to about 25%. And I don't think it's going to get much less than that right now. People always talk about the demise of private practice. And I heard that in the early 90s when the HMOs were starting to emerge. But the truth of the matter is that you get people in groups that are excited and things happen. And then after a period of time, they slow down and people realize that they're not happy or they like to practice differently. And so we'll see return to some degree, but never, never 75, 80% again. So that's really what the environment is. It's highly competitive. But the flip side is there's always opportunity. Patients in our area, we've had so many people signing up for UCLA and, these, and after a period of time, they're not happy. They're not getting the personal care that they want. And the touch of a small private practice who knows who they are when they walk in, even though it's been difficult and it's been systemically changing, there's always opportunity. And I think we'll continue to see that. All right. You mentioned the opportunity as far as this more personal touch. What are other opportunities do you see when you are competing with a large health system down the block or in the same town, next town over? I think the first thing, is, as I mentioned already, is that personal touch. And that's not just the physician. It's also the physicians and staff, the people at the front desk, the MAs and the nurses that bring them back to the room. These are critical touch points that, that we have with our patients. The other thing that's intriguing has just been the patient empowerment kind of movement of not just of knowledge. When I was in training to get any kind of medical information, you had to go to a medical library and to go to a medical library, you had to be part of the medical system. So you've seen this very significant democratization of information, which in general is good. Of course, all of us who practice know that it lacks context and it makes it a little bit difficult. At the same time, with this empowerment, you have patients that want that personal touch, that want to be able to reach out, whether it's by texting or email or something like that, things that individual doctors are far more equipped to, to be able to, to handle than a big center. The other thing that's happened, and this is more in the technological and innovative space, there are so many new tools available for small medical practices that increase their efficiency um, and make them much more able to take care of the, uh, the totality of the needs of patients. And I think that's going to work much better in small practices than these very large integrated systems. Tell me about some of these tools. Do you want to do this? And we're going to be doing a series here. Do you want to talk a little about the tools since you mentioned it? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, everything from patient communication to billing. As an example, <clears throat> there was a company, it used to be called Smile Reminder. They changed their name to Solution Reach, but they came out of the dental space. And the first time I ever saw it was when my dentist started sending me these text reminders. That's its old hat now, but 10 years ago, it was not. And they innovated some of that. And then there's companies like NextHealth that allow you to have your patients online, pay online, and it adds efficiency. And it's an interesting thing when you're in private practice, you're 
looking to save every dollar. And that is one important thing, but sometimes a small investment pays back in droves. So Nexhelp is a perfect example. In our practice, it was a debate as to whether we're going to implement this system, you know, several hundred dollars a month. It's going to allow our patients to reach us, us to reach them, for them to pay their bills for them to schedule. And the question about whether we do that was resolved in about one minute when we realized that just on postage alone, it would pay for itself. So all of a sudden, we're not having to spend those several hundred dollars a month on postage. But also just the time, and we had a lot of practices. You know, we have our staff during lunchtime printing out and folding invoices and stuffing them into an envelope, and all of a sudden everything's automated. That's a really significant thing. We're going to be seeing more and more of that on the more on the diagnostic level in terms of devices and things that patients can use at home and send us up to date and real time information. So these are the kinds of things that I think are going to make all of us a little bit more efficient and better able to take care of our patients who is thinking about starting their private practice needs to consider. Telemedicine became a very big part with COVID. Prior to COVID, it was very difficult to get patients to be willing to do telemedicine. We had a program in our office and we'd have maybe three people a month. And it was really geared towards our college students. They're going away for college and they don't really want to deal with student health. But literally, we would we'd send out notices, call us, and we'd get like three a month. And with COVID, we're probably doing 10 a day. And part of it is for convenience. Part of it is people are used to working from home and doing ordering their groceries from home so they want to see their patients from home. It was liberalized to a significant degree in the sense that laws were requiring you to be licensed in the state in which you were speaking to a patient were relaxed. Those have tightened up some. We'll see where that goes. I think it's very hard to continue to justify that. So we might see some change in that. But I think also just, just in terms of looking at what do our patients really need and how do they need and when do they need them, technology is going to be coming around the corner that's going to allow you essentially to have a virtual office in everybody's, in everybody's home and be able to do certain diagnostic things you cannot do now. You can do them on a limited basis. You can get peak flows sent to you and you can get glucose levels sent to you. But I don't think we're far off from having very good ability very to listen to somebody's heart. It's a matter of time before our iPhones can do a strep test. So these are the kinds of things that forward thinking, thinking about it long term, I think you got to embrace the technology and find yourself in positions where you can see what is new and what's cutting edge and implement that into your practice because patients are going to want it and demand it. Do you have any preferences for telemedicine for those who are listening out there? I mean, what we found in our office works well is Doxy. Pretty simple thing. The issues with telemedicine, first, there's the technical issue. The number of times, like, can you hear me? Can you hear me? There's a trigger camera on, these kinds of things. The connectivity is an important thing as well. What I've liked about Doxy is basically you just send a, a link to a patient. They click on the link and they immediately enter into essentially a waiting room. When you click on that, then you're able to have a nice conversation with them. Vast majority of patients have the technology to do that. Some don't. One of the interesting things I found about telemedicine, when I first went to practice, I would actually do house calls. And it was really just that they weren't far away. And if it was something that was much better for them than seeing them in the emergency room, you learn something when you go into somebody's home medically. You, you learn a lot of different things. And so doing telemedicine, you get some of that. You get an entree into people's lives that does contribute to your ability to understand how to take better care of them medically. Thank you. You also mentioned the emergence of concierge supergroups. Do you want to touch upon that a little bit? Sure. A number of years ago, we first started seeing concierge practices. And basically, 
the way it would go is you'd have to be a practice in a fairly affluent area where people could afford it. And for a set price per year, you would limit the amount of uh, patients that you're taking care of and therefore less wait times, more accessibility and these kinds of things. It's a little bit hard to manage as an individual practice because it means you're on call essentially all of the time. So initially we started seeing these groups that would emerge that wouldn't own your practice, but they would essentially set it up for you as a VIP concierge thing. For a period of time, I think that's going to work. It may be saturated already, particularly in New York, LA, and some of these other larger cities. But what we're beginning to see now is it's not just on the level of, let me come help your practice be concierge, but rather whole new systems. There's several in Los Angeles, several in New York that I'm aware of, where it's an entire group practice that includes both bricks and mortar, telemedicine, home visits, and it's done as a set fee per year plus insurance. I'm even aware that they're developing a hospital like that in the Los Angeles area that is essentially going to be a subscription hospital, relatively small in size. So, you know, you're going to see this. Some of these things might face regulatory hurdles eventually that might make it very difficult for them to do that, um, particularly if we were to ever end up in a national health service kind of thing, single payer type of situation, those things probably would be much more heavily regulated than they are right now. But the thing is, what they're doing is they're siphoning off a large number of patients in the more affluent areas, the ones that private practices essentially have thrived on for a long period of time. As we come to this ending here, you had mentioned a number of like the telemedicine. You also mentioned maybe some remote patient monitoring, the billing. Are any of those available with your group purchasing program? Our group, which is a, it's actually known as a physician buying group. Historically, physician buying groups have dealt exclusively with vaccines, really came out of the pediatric world. And for a perspective, for those of you that are not in pediatrics, roughly 20 to 25% of all of your expenses are vaccines. It's astonishing how much of it is. And the vaccine market in the pediatric realm changed from being a profit center to a cost center maybe about 20 years ago, 20, 25 years ago. And that kind of drove a lot of this. So the vast majority of them really are vaccines only, and maybe they have like AAA type discounts for uh, medical and surgical supplies. We've taken a very different tactic in the sense that we've looked at three different distinct branches of helping medical practices. So number one is dealing with discounted goods and services, getting a better price than the things you already purchased. So whether it's medical and surgical supplies, vaccine, malpractice, practice, things like that. The second thing that we've really dealt with has to do with practice efficiencies. So next health being an example that I'd mentioned or a solution reach. And then there's a whole range of others that deal with everything from revenue cycle management to EMR, all of these different things. The third thing, and I think this is ultimately where we're going to be focusing a lot more of our time over the next couple of years, is going to be in revenue producing things. The, the squeeze in terms of what happens with medical practice is significant. It's going to become worse, particularly with Medicare. So I think we've got to be looking for other reasonable ways to generate revenue. So one of the ones that, that we have as an example is a company called Proficient Rx. And what they do is they essentially create a virtual pharmacy in your office. So it's just generic medications. You price it the way that you think it's reasonable to be priced. Ideally, you should be doing it around people's copay. And that way, somebody comes to your office, you're seeing them, you know what they want and you know what they need, and you're able to provide it at the office and save them a trip to the pharmacy and 
you know, especially in inclement weather, that's a real problem. And it does provide some significant revenue to a practice. And one of the things that's intriguing, just as a breed, the physicians always have this sense of not wanting to be mercantile, at least most of us do. We would like to stay as pure as we can and be as free from commercial interests as possible. But the flip side of it is this, is that you cannot practice medicine if your practice doesn't stay in business. You can't take care of the patients that you want to take care of. And I think especially when you're looking at something that provides a needed service to patients, you have to get over this idea that we're in business because the reality is we are in business. We're in a very good business. We're in one that really provides wonderful service. And we should be really satisfied and happy about that and not be bashful about trying to make our businesses a little bit more successful. Guys, continue on with this series. We are going to be doing a number of podcasts. Dr. Greenberg, thank you so much. Certainly. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Female Physician Entrepreneurs Podcast. If you like us, please give us a nice review and tell your family and friends about us. We'll see you on another episode.